spoke the other night about the first two stages of purification. That is, purification of conduct or action, purification of mind. Just to clarify that way of understanding things, this is not about taking on some persona or image of holiness and purity and then acting out from that image because that is a setup. It's really about understanding the process of transformation that takes place when we see things clearly. So it's really a grassroots endeavor. It comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. Carl Jung wrote something very appropriate about this. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. So we're not about imagining ourselves to be figures of light and then pretending to be that. It's really to make what's unconscious conscious, to illuminate all the sides of ourselves. So we can genuinely purify our actions by paying attention, paying very careful attention to the subtleties of our motivation. That's what purifies action. The purification of mind has to do, in this particular framework, with the development the training in a certain level of concentration, what in the Pali and Sanskrit is called samadhi, that stillness or steadiness of mind, which is essential for clear seeing. We need to have a certain stability of mindfulness in order to be able to illuminate what is actually going on. So a question arises then, If, as the Buddha said, the mind, and he purportedly did say this, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. But the nature of awareness is unobstructed, is clear, is vivid, is lucid. If these statements are true, why is it that we get so entangled in the story, in our dramas? What is it that obscures the natural clarity of mind? because we don't seem to be residing in that natural radiance very often. More often than not, we're caught up in the drama. The Buddha pointed out five mind states, five qualities or energies in our minds that function to obscure, or to obscure the clarity, to hinder the concentration. So it becomes very important to understand what these five qualities or energies are and to learn how to work with them. Because if they're unseen, unrecognized, they have tremendous power in our lives. And when we do recognize them, we actually find that they're very workable. I usually have the intention to get through all five, but I get very excited about the first few, so I often don't reach the end. 
the first one, the big one, a big one, is the force of desire. Now we need to be a little careful here because in English the word desire means many different things. So we have to be clear about the meaning here. In English the word desire can mean the desire of greed or clinging. It can also mean motivation. We would say, I have a desire to accomplish something, which is not necessarily greed. Just <coughs> the meaning is, I'm motivated to do this. We could use the word desire in the sense of fulfilling our basic needs, desire for food, for water. That also is not the force of greed. What I'm talking about here and what the Buddha talked about as being a hindrance is that meaning of desire which is attachment, grasping, clinging, craving. Those are the, that is the quality of the mind that we're talking about. How can we begin to observe it? How can we begin to understand this very basic driving force in our lives? Buddha said that craving is the underlying energy of samsara, of this repeated round of rebirth. So it's a very powerful thing in us. It's not trivial. How can we begin to see it, to look at it, to investigate it? We can see desire clearly when we look at our strongest attachments. For example, attachment to our bodies. Most of us are quite attached to these bodies, and when something goes wrong with the body, we suffer. Or in the face of losing the body, in the face of death. If there's strong attachment, we suffer. And this is common. This is, this is the common state. It's something to look at. We can see desire or craving or wanting or clinging or attachment in our relationship to other people. That's a big area of attachment and craving. The people we're close to. We get attached. We can see desire work with the things we crave. We all have our, we all have our pet little cravings. I'm a, I'm a big uh, cookie addict. And this friend from South Africa, he brought back this one brand of cookies called, the name of the cookie is Eat Some More. <laughs> he brought this back to me and it was perfect. Yeah. Have another one. There's a big range also in the intensity of desire. And this would be something interesting to look at in our lives. It can range from obsessive passions. Now, when the mind is consumed by some passion, some wanting, not passion in the good sense of inspired energy, but passion in the sense of craving, when it becomes obsessive, or we see it, and it's very common in our society, the force of craving on the level of addictive addictions, addictive craving. You know, and when it's that powerful, it's a tremendous problem, whatever the addiction is for. We can see the force of desire or craving just in our more ordinary recurrent fantasies. You know, we sit here and the same fantasies play over and over again. Why? There's some craving there, there's some desire there. And at the very weekend, we can see it 
just in the form of a passing, wanting thought. Oh, pizza would be nice. You know, whatever the particular craving or wanting is. I mentioned in, I think it was a group today or yesterday, I saw this force of craving work very uh, viscerally on retreat in noticing the difference in my walking meditation where I would just be really present and balanced, lift, move, place. The difference between that and when I was walking to lunch. <laughs> it was like there was a little rope pulling me. I was very subtle, but I could feel the energy toppling forward. What is that? There's some force of wanting, of desiring. That it, and the force of wanting, if we were to represent it in our bodies, what would the force of wanting or desire look like? It would look like this. No. Reaching out for. This is not a very balanced place. So we want to look, we want to see how it's working in our lives, in our practice. A place that comes up a lot in the meditation practice itself, and it's crucial to begin to see this clearly, is desire or wanting or craving in the form of expectation. And it's very tricky because sometimes expectation comes disguised as right effort. We think we're just putting out good effort in the practice, but really the quality of the energy may be a wanting something to happen, or a wanting to get some good state back, or a wanting to hold on to something that seems good. That expectation is a setup for discouragement, for disappointment. I had an interesting experience with that just on this last retreat that I did, this health course. Uh, I was sitting for a few months and I got to a place where my body felt really open and wonderful. And it hadn't felt so wonderful, I don't know, maybe in 20 years. So it really felt good. And then I did something. I did. I won't go into all the details, but I did something and I screwed it all up. And from this tremendous openness and flow of energy, it's just my body felt twisted and tight and the energy wasn't moving and I felt awful. And there was strong emotional reaction going on uh, of anguish and remorse. And it was just going on and on. And then at a certain point, I reminded myself, if it can be lost, it's not it. Right? I, I looked and I said, what am I holding on to? <coughs> what am I attached to here? If it's something that can be lost, that's not what the practice is about. And remembering that, to let go of that attachment, that craving, it was a very pleasant state. But like everything else, it's subject to the law of change. If we have an expectation of trying to get something, of trying to hold onto something, of trying to recreate, we just set ourselves up for suffering. 
This understanding, I think, has particularly relevance for you in your work, and especially in these times when environmental activists, the political climate is not very supportive for the work right now. The same principle here, it was enunciated very incisively in the great uh, Indian spiritual text, the Bhagavad Gita. And I read this in college. It was, it was sort of my first introduction to Eastern thought. Before I had meditated or knew anything about Buddhism, there was one line in that book, which when I looked back on it years later, I saw that I had underlined it repeatedly. It just jumped out at me. And it's just about this. The recurring theme in the Bhagavad Gita is act without attachment to the fruit of the action. Act without attachment to the fruit of the action. Without that expectation, without that holding on to the fruit coming out a certain way. That actually frees up an enormous amount of energy. Doesn't mean that we don't direct ourselves in a particular way. We have a goal, we have a purpose, we have a vision, but can we act without attachment, without clinging, without grasping at the result? Because to the degree that there's that grasping, there will be disappointment, there will be discouragement, there will be depletion of energy. And to the degree that we're free of that attachment, the energy is sustained. So I think that what you can see right in the meditation practice about this will also and can have a tremendous impact on how you actually undertake the work that you do. Coming back to the actual meditation practice, and to see how the force of desire hinders concentration and obscures the clarity, we get entranced by the object. Whatever it is, whatever particular object our mind is going for, whether it's some external object or some internal state. One, one yogi came once to an interview and she was describing the force of desire in her mind. And <laughs> she was a very funny lady and she was kind of acting it out. I want it, I need it, I must have it. <laughs> That's the energy when desire is there. It's that entrapment by whatever the object is. We're no longer clearly seeing the true nature. We're no longer seeing the impermanence. We're no longer seeing the emptiness. In the course of the day, the days here, pay attention to the kind of desires that arise. Really begin to see the force of desire, of wanting in the mind. A lot of people have different food fantasies, or maybe recurring sexual fantasies. If those of you who have been on retreat before are familiar with the phenomena of the Vipassana romance. You know, where somebody in the room, who you may not even know very well, but there's an attraction. And people can sit for hours, for days, just fantasizing, meeting this person, and after the retreat, going off together and getting married. And it's 
just living in the world of projection. <laughs> we create these mental fantasies and really get lost in them. It's helpful to puncture that balloon, to see that it is just a projection of our mind. Not only does desire, this, this wanting mind or the expecting mind, hinder the development of concentration and stillness and clarity, it also doesn't deliver on its pro- promise of happiness. Why do we get seduced by it so much? Because there's inherent in that desire, there's a certain implicit promise, fulfill me and you'll be happy. And so we keep going for it. I'd like to read to you. I think somebody sent this to Carol, and it's wonderful. There's a big picture of a Buddha on this, this from a magazine. It can take several lifetimes to reach a state of inner peace and tranquility, or it can take a couple of weeks. Concentrate deeply. Think about a 14-day ocean journey to Singapore or Bali, Thailand or China, days when your every whim is anticipated, instantly met, places where the sights, smells, lights are a sensual feast imagination can't do justice. Now a flash of insight. Royal Caribbean will soon take you to the Far East. <laughs> Call for a brief <laughs> Call for a brief brochure. Or ask your travel agent about the nirvana you have waiting. <laughs> I mean in one sense it's funny. In another sense, to some degree or other, we all play into that. It's like we live our lives as if the next thing, whatever it may be, it may not be a Royal Caribbean cruise to the Pacific, but whatever it is for us, that the next thing will finally bring us completion or fulfillment or happiness or peace. And it never does. How many pleasant, enjoyable, wonderful things have you experienced in your life? Many. We all have experienced many things, and in that sense, I think we lead quite privileged lives. And yet we know, we know from experience that it doesn't quite do it. And you certainly do know that, otherwise you wouldn't be here. There's something we recognize that's missing in this endless seeking, in this endless wanting, in this endless desire. Now it's said that the hardest disease to cure is when the medicine is causing the disease. When the very medicine we're taking causes the disease. Craving is like that. We keep fulfilling craving or wanting in an effort to come to completion. (laughs) But the more we keep fulfilling it, the more the craving grows. And so we just stay on this endless cycle of wanting and fulfilling it or not fulfilling it and then wanting more 
there is no rest, there's no peace. You know, in some way, it's so reflective in our society of just the massive consumerism. What is that about? It's about this constant reaching out for something else to make us happy. And it's never satisfied. This doesn't mean that we should never enjoy ourselves. That's not what I'm suggesting. We do. Life has pleasure and pain, and we experience both. But are we driven by desire? Do we think that, yes, this is going to be the cause of my fulfillment? Are we on that endless wheel? Or do we simply open to the pleasure when it comes, letting it go? It's important to understand that there are many levels of happiness. And the sense pleasures that we might enjoy, even the pleasures, mental pleasures, The Buddha actually talked of it, sense pleasures, as being the first, the first of the kind of happiness. I want to read something from one of the, uh, this, this comes from one of the suttas, the discourses. Um, just as an aside, there's a wonderful new translation uh, of 150 discourses of the Buddha. And so anybody who's interested really in kind of getting it direct, uh, at the end of the retreat, I can I can tell you about it. Um, when you read to it, there's just a gold mine. There's a wealth of dharma, and you see the Buddha in kind of his personality come through in a lot of different ways. One time, somebody came to him and said, "How can you, you know, how can you have given up all the worldly pleasures of the senses? It's what people live for, you know. And here you've renounced them all." And the Buddha kind of in a in a lion's roar. He said, I can experience the peak of pleasure without moving my body for seven days and nights. Who dwelled in greater pleasure? <laughs> yeah, you want pleasure? <laughs> it's not in nice sights and nice sounds and nice smells. Oh, it is to a, to a small degree. I can sit in the peak of pleasure for seven days and seven nights without moving my body. Who experiences such happiness? What we're actually capable of, the potential, is so far greater than we're normally aware of. But it takes unhooking a little bit, freeing ourselves to some extent from this incessant force of desire or craving in the mind. So how can we use this time the time of the retreat where there's no distraction and where the whole point is to really investigate clearly and deeply the nature of these forces. How can we begin to see and understand the force of desire in ourselves? Most important, the basic foundation of understanding is to be aware of it when it arises. Pay attention when you're sitting, when you're walking. If desire arises in the mind, if wanting arises in the mind, focus your attention on that. That becomes a chance to understand how desire is working, how the wanting mind is working. Notice the many times in the day. This is not a, this is not a rare occurrence. Desire happens many, many times. You with the breath. 
Notice what happens. Or why, or what takes you away from the breath. This is a very simple object. In, out, in, out, in, out. And yet it's so difficult just to stay concentrated and focused on it. Why? Pay attention to what pulls you away. Is it the desire to enjoy some fantasy? Or some thought form, some planning? There's some kind of craving at work. I remember one time in my practice, I, I was in India, and the monastery, the meditation center, there was a walking space on the roof of the building. And I remember I was doing my walking meditation back and forth, and every single time I came to the end, okay, just look around and gaze at the scenery. It didn't change. I mean, every time I looked, it, on some level it was changing, of course, but it was amazing to me. The pull, you know, just the force of that wanting, of that desire in mind. I came to the end, look around. And it took a real discipline, it took a real quality of effort just to renounce that. Not that there was anything wrong in it, but it was just the force of desire, of wanting, working, to see it, so that we understand. Pay attention to how easy it is to become identified with the wanting mind. It really feels like it's our duty or obligation to fulfill it. It feels so much who we are when desire comes that there's this strong, this very strong energy when the desire is that this needs to be fulfilled. One of the great insights that can come on retreat, and it's tremendously liberating, it comes through mindfulness, through paying attention, is to experience for yourself the fact that the desire can arise, be seen, and disappear. It does not have to be fulfilled each time in order to be resolved. That the desire itself, like everything else, is impermanent. So if we see it and don't necessarily buy into it, the desire is there, we note it, we see it, it's gone. That's a much freer space than having to compulsively respond or react to each desire. Another way of working with it has to do with understanding the meaning and the experience of renunciation. Now, often when we hear this word, it kind of sends shivers. <laughs> renunciation. It sounds like, sometimes I have the image, it sounds like spinach must sound to a kid. You know, that it's good for us, but some other time. You're probably familiar with St. Augustine's famous line, I guess before he was a saint, uh, I don't know, Dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> and that's often our attitude about renunciation. Let me renounce, but not quite yet. This is not really understanding what the renunciation feels like. 
If you look carefully, if you really observe, you can see that the force of addiction is the burden. And the letting go of that is actually a place of freedom. I'll give you a few examples, which I think you'll be able to relate to easily. Just in watching TV, imagine what it would be like if the mind wanted everything that was advertised. I mean, as all the commercials come on, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. It would be a hell of And the force of desire, the force of addiction, would be so painful. The renunciation of that is actually the ease in the mind. So we just let all those commercials come and go. We don't get pulled into it. Most of us have learned this quite well with respect to commercials on TV. We haven't learned it so well with commercials in our minds. You know, all those, all those things that come up in the mind. Oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. That would be nice. I want this. Really pay attention to the contraction of that state and to the freedom when the mind lets go. One suggestion for how to experience this directly. Next time a desire comes, for anything. It can be a major obsession or it can be just a passing whim. See if you can become mindful when the desire is present, when that wanting energy is present. Notice what it feels like and then notice in the moment of transition when the desire disappears. I mean, it'll be there and be there and be there and at a certain time it'll disappear. Notice the difference in how you feel. It's quite startling. It's like being let out of the grip of something. And when the desire is there and we're caught in it, it's like we're really caught. And in the moment it's gone, that sense of relief. Again, as I mentioned the first night, none of this is about believing. It's all about investigating for yourself. So these are just suggestions for ways to look at this very powerful force. When we become aware of desire in the mind, when we're mindful of it, mindful of this wanting, it opens up a great space of choice. Because then we're able to see, is this desire, is this wanting worth doing or not? We create a space of freedom in ourselves through awareness. When we're not aware, we're simply acting out all these conditionings. So when desire comes, make it an object of meditation as a way of discovering, as a way of exploring what this energy is. The second powerful hindrance is just the opposite of desire or craving or wanting, and that is aversion. And aversion takes many forms. It can be in its strong form hatred, or fear, or annoyance, or irritation, or anger, or sorrow, impatience. All of these are forms of aversion to our experience, to what's unpleasant. 
And the conditioning is so clear when we look. Just as the mind is attracted to what's pleasant, desires what's pleasant, the conditioning in us is to have aversion to what's unpleasant, whether it's unpleasant bodily sensations or unpleasant experiences outside. We have aversion when we don't get what we want. Some kind of aversion arises. When we get what we don't want. Sometimes things come to us that we don't want, and we feel aversion. It's very easy to observe in relationship to pain. You know, so when pain and discomfort comes, that's a prime opportunity to watch the force of aversion in the mind. See what the mind does. Is there a contraction? Is there a pulling back? Is there a fear? Is there a pushing away? All of that is the opposite of relaxing into, softening, open, opening to. So see how it's working. We have aversion arise about past situations. This is really common. We can be sitting here, this peaceful environment, nobody's bothering you, and then the mind will start rehashing something that happened in the past. And it's amazing, the emotions that can come up from that as we relive no past experience in our minds. We might get angry, we might get frightened. There's, a, there's an insight or a principle here which, if you can call to mind at the right time, will be tremendously helpful. It was expressed by one of my teachers in this way. He said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. Okay, so then you can just substitute for mother anything. The thought of what happened last week is not what happened last week. That's not the situation. It's just a thought in the mind. There's a Zen story illustrating this. It seems that there was this monk living in a cave, practicing. He was also an artist. And he painted, uh, on the wall of a cave, he painted a tiger. And he painted it so realistically that when he looked at it, he got frightened. We do that a lot. We paint tigers in our minds, look at them, and get frightened. A good note, a good label, when some thought form is arising that's making you angry or upset or some aversive reaction, you might make the note, painted tiger. It's only a thought. That's all it is. And the thought itself is insubstantial. It's empty. There's not much there. But mostly we are caught in the content. We don't see, we forget, we're in delusion. We don't see that it is just a thought, that it's just the painted tiger. We think that the tiger is real. Very often aversion arises not only about reliving past experiences, but also about present experiences on retreat. 
I don't know whether particular things have come up yet, but they probably will. I'll just mention a few a few experiences I've had. One time I was practicing in India. I had rented this house up in the mountains, hill, what they call hill station, Dalhousie. Not just a little cottage and a fantastic view and peaceful, and I was really inspired to practice. And about a month after I was there, just on a field below my house, this group, they called them it was the Delhi Girls. It was kind of a paramilitary Girl Scout troop. They came up, and again, as I mentioned the other night, they set up these loudspeakers. And from six in the morning till ten at night, they were blaring this Hindi film music. And I'm sitting. I got so angry. <laughs> How could they do this to me? Here I've come to get enlightened, and they're blasting this Hindi film music all day long. I was writing these enraged letters to the mayor of the town. I couldn't believe that other people didn't mind. I just <laughs> but apparently they didn't, because it seemed to be quite accepted. It took a long time, but finally, because there was no choice, my mind had to surrender. I said, okay, this is what's happening. And when I finally was able to become accepting of that, the sound was not a problem at all. It was, it was just what was there. It was my aversion to it which created so much suffering. At IMS sometimes we have what are called the window wars. Because in the meditation hall some people like fresh air, and this is more in the cold weather, and some people don't like the cold air coming in. So yogis will come in and they'll close the window, and then other yogis will come in and they'll open the window. <laughs> and it can get pretty intense. In Burma, at the monastery, there were the fan wars, and two monks actually came to blows. This in a monastery, practicing mindfulness and metta over whether the fans should be on or not. It doesn't take much. And it's really important to see this in our own mind, because then it becomes much easier to understand what's happening in the world. It's not just out there. The same forces that create so much suffering in the world are happening right within ourselves. You know, so we really want to see and pay attention. We want to illuminate that shadow side. Anger and aversion also arises when we personalize what's impersonal. And there are many, many examples of this, but the one that really stood out is, this was a year or two ago, when I was flying out, actually I think it was to New Mexico. I was on this plane from Newark to Denver, and we taxied out, and then the plane was loaded, it was totally full. And then that awful feeling when it stops, <laughs> now you know something's going on. And then we taxi back to the runway, to the uh, gate, and the pilot gets on and says, it's too heavy, and in Denver it was too windy, and it was above the safety, the weight was above the safety uh, limit for landing in that intense wind. 
There was one guy on this plane who got furious. He charged up from the back and was screaming at this poor flight attendant as if a flight attendant had anything to do with it. And you could just see he was taking the situation so personally. It was frustrating for everybody. But because he personalized it so much, the anger was was overflowing and and very unpleasant for himself and the people around him. So we want to look at that. And, and there are many times when we do the same thing. Okay, so how to work? How to work with the different forms of aversion, whether it's anger or hatred or fear or sorrow, is a form of aversion. Impatience. We need to see it quickly and clearly. Make it the object of your practice, just like the breath, just like a sensation. Anger arises, aversion arises. Open up to it so you can feel the energy. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote something quite nice about working with anger. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom, because the sunlight penetrates deeply into the flower. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing mindfulness, particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack, and you will be able to look into its depth and see its roots. There's something quite important in that, because a very conditioned tendency when aversion or anger arises is to judge it, or to judge ourselves for having it, to feel angry about the anger. Obviously, no solution because we're just tying the knot tighter. When it arises, whether in a weak form or a strong form, can we hold it tenderly? Can we really open to it and feel it and experience it? Not wallow in it, it's not getting lost in the anger, but it's being willing to see, to feel, to understand. We need to take a lot of care with this because anger is tremendously seductive. The Buddha expressed the seductive power of it and the harmful power of it very well. He said, anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. And I think we've all had that experience. So that murderously sweet feeling of getting and expressing our anger. But often we miss 
the fact that it has a poison source. Sometimes people have the idea that giving up or letting go of anger will mean the letting go of a certain energy that's effective in the world for changing things, for changing things that need to be changed. Anger is a very limited resource for change because it burns us up. Anger is not a sustaining force for change. And you probably know very well in the work you do, people who are consumed by anger about injustice or exploitation or degradation of the planet, if anger is the ongoing motivation, it's neither very effective in the long run, nor can it be sustained. The great beauty of the practice and of the meditation is it opens us to the possibility of energy sources much more powerful than anger for effecting change. And that really is the force and the power of compassion. If we can open to the suffering that goes on in ourselves and in the world and move from a place of compassion that turns out to be a much more effective way of working. And, I mean, there are many examples of this, but the one that comes to mind, of course, um, is to see how the Dalai Lama works in relationship to the immense amount of suffering that the Chinese have inflicted in Tibet. I mean, the, the stories are the worst. And to see him, I mean, it's quite amazing because from what he says and from how it appears, he harbors no anger towards the Chinese. He's working in in the most skillful ways that he can to change the situation, but from a place of compassion. I think we can learn from that in our own work and in our own practice. So when aversion arises in any of the forms, whether it's about physical discomfort or about certain mental states or about remembering certain things or situations on retreat, whatever way aversion arises, work with it, see it, make it an object of your attention. See how the aversion too comes and goes. Is it possible to feel it without identifying with it? to hold it, as Thich Nhat Hanh suggested, with compassionate, incompassionate arms. So there's desire as a strong force in the mind. There's anger or aversion. The next one is very common. It's called, in the Buddhist jargon, sloth and torpor. And I love that little phrase because I remember reading in this some naturalist book about the animal, the three-toed sloth. And I don't know which came first, the name of the animal or the mind state. But it said in the book it says this animal can hang by its tail and you could shoot a gun off right next to its head and it wouldn't turn its head. 
you know. And then once, a very long while, it'll kind of make its way down, I don't know, either to eat or to mate, and then it'll go back up and hang there for another, however long. When sloth and torpor is present in the mind, it's a quality of dullness, heaviness, of low energy. We don't actualize the energy that we really have. No, our energy is suppressed. Sometimes people recognize the superficial aspect of sloth and torpor, which is sleepiness or drowsiness, but don't see the more profound meaning of it as a mind state. The problem really is not the bout of periodic sleepiness that may come. And that's common. There are times when we have low energy and we feel drowsy or sleepy. You can work with it in a variety of ways, but that's not the heart of the problem. The heart of sloth and torpor is that quality of mind which retreats from difficulty. That's the real meaning of sloth and torpor. When we're faced with some difficulty, the mind that retreats from it. And it's funny because sometimes sloth and torpor comes disguised as compassion. We're feeling some difficulty. Oh, I'll take care of myself. I'll go, whatever. Have another, have my tenth cup of tea or, you know, whatever it is we do that we think we'll take care of. Sometimes taking care of ourselves in various ways is very appropriate. But sometimes it's really just that retreating from difficulty, you know, out of laziness. Pay attention to that, because when that quality is strong in the mind, it really it suppresses our life energy, not only in the practice, but in the way we live our lives. There's no delight, there's no joy in our minds when sloth and torpor is present in this way. It also works in a very, very funny way. When sloth and torpor is present, those factors don't like energetic people. You know, when we're feeling a lot of sloth and torpor, and we see somebody making a lot of effort, and we tend not to like that person. I have a, I have a strong uh, example of this. I was on retreat once, and I was, myself and this other friend, kind of sharing a little space, and I was putting forth a pretty good effort. I, mean, I didn't feel like I was a slouch in the practice. But I'd wake up in the morning, and this guy would already be up. And I'd be going to sleep at night, and it was pretty late at night. He'd still be up. And I started getting really angry at him, <laughs> you know, and comparing myself and judging myself and feeling bad about myself. And there was this whole scenario going on, and really irritated by him, until finally I remembered and realized, oh yeah, this is just the working of sloth and torpor. It's the sloth and torpor that doesn't like the energy. It's not me. And when I saw that it was the working of this particular mindset, it depersonalized the whole thing. And it actually brought some humor to the situation, and also inspiration. Instead of being angry or irritated at this guy, it inspired me to make more effort. 
So we want to see how each of these mind states function, because they influence, they condition the way we're responding in our life. So what to do when we feel this kind of sluggishness or retreating, you know, or heaviness or sleepiness or drowsiness? It's helpful, first of, first of all, to recognize it, you know, to see clearly, yes, this is present, and then to see if it's possible to become more precise in your noting, so that you really are connecting very closely with what's happening. I had another interesting experience with this, also on retreat. It was quite late at night, and I was feeling really tired. I was doing walking meditation. This was at IMS. And I was just kind of really didn't have much energy. And I thought, well, I'll walk faster, which could be a thing to try, you know, to see if I can rouse some energy. It didn't work. I was walking faster, and I was still feeling really, really sleepy. And the person next to me, she was a great yogi. She was walking very slowly. She was the queen of slowness at this particular retreat. I mean, it was quite amazing. So she was walking next to me, and I thought, well, maybe I'll try seeing how slowly I can walk, which was totally counterintuitive. I mean, you're feeling sleepy. You don't think that walking, walking even slower will help. It was amazing. What I did was I just stopped and I said to myself, how slowly can I move and still move? I brought it right down to the extreme. Within two steps, my mind was totally alert and energized. And it was so surprising to me, but I realized by bringing it down to that extreme of slowness and interest, my mind got so precise and so connected with what was going on that all of this energy came. So you want to play with it. There's no one pat formula. When you're feeling sloth and torpor, in whatever form, recognize it, become mindful of it. You can investigate the very state itself. What does it feel like in the mind, in the body? Play with changing the speed if you're walking. If you're sitting, you might stand up or open your eyes. It's an important energy to understand and to work with. Because it actually... When we can see it and free ourselves from it, it opens up a heart quality of courage. That is a willingness to face difficulty rather than a retreating from difficulty. So it has a very profound influence in the way we live our lives. I just see there's one more suggestion for working with sloth and torpor when all else fails. This was, this was uh, told to us when this Korean Zen master, who was a very fierce old guy, he, he visited IMS one year. Uh, and he basically turned everything upside down in his visit. But he was talking about sleepiness. And he said that the way he practiced when he felt sleepy was 
to tie a knife under his chin, point up. <laughs> so if all else fails, and you're feeling inspired, three of the five. <laughs> there's desire, there's aversion, there's sloth and torpor. The other two, just to mention what they are, are the energies of restlessness and agitation, which is a hindrance and needs to be looked at, be mindful of, and doubt. Doubt in oneself, doubt in the practice, doubt in one's ability, doubt that this is the right time. All of these thoughts in the mind can be very debilitating. And it requires a very strong and incisive awareness to catch that tape. Be very watchful for the doubting tape, because of all of the hindrances, doubt when unseen is the most obstructive. Because doubt actually keeps us from doing anything. And really to see that it is just a tape, it is just a thought form. Coming back to what I mentioned in the beginning, the teaching that the mind is naturally radiant and pure, the nature of awareness is clear. These states of mind, of the hindrances, are not inherent in awareness, they're visitors. They're states which come when certain conditions are present and then leave. The problem is that they've become so familiar to us. We're so conditioned because they're powerful forces, they're not trivial. We invite them in. We take them to be who we are. Understand that they are visitors to the mind. They're all workable, but it takes bringing attention, it takes bringing awareness and mindfulness to them. I'd just like to close with one little saying of the Buddhas said the gift of truth is the highest gift the taste of truth is the sweetest taste and the joy of truth is the greatest joy and that's what our practice is about it's just uncovering all the dimensions of ourselves all the aspects This is what the Dharma is about. It means seeing what is true. And we see each one for ourselves. Because it's out of that seeing that freedom and compassion come. Let's take a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.